I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 29th, 2022. Coming up, get ready for a sonic journey. Biologist David George Haskell will discuss his new book called Sounds Wild and Broken. And it spans the entire universe from its quieter early phases to the more recent orchestral sounds of and concophonous threats to creatures of the sea, land, and air, and threats to our own well-being and the connection with the natural world. Listening to KGNU's Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. Some of those rich sounds you just heard from macaws, insects, and other creatures in an Amazon rainforest in Ecuador may not sound familiar to many residents in Colorado, but we all marvel at the sounds of nature in our own backyards and forests, especially now at the start of spring. We're greeted by black-capped chickadees, robins, house finches, and so many other creatures clamoring for nature's bounty. David George Haskell is a biologist at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. He's been spending a lot of time thinking about the origins, evolution, and importance of nature's multitude of sounds. He's also been observing close up everything from crickets and frogs in rainforests to elk and crossbill birds in Colorado's Rocky Mountains. Dr. Haskell joins us via phone from his university office to talk about his new book. It's called Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. David, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you, Susan. It's a delight to be with you again. Yeah, great to see you, or almost see you again. So I'm curious, with your previous books, The Songs of Trees and then The Forest Unseen, you spent a lot of time then, of course, sitting in forests and studying both their tiny and their towering inhabitants up close and personal. And then with this new book, you zoom in on the sounds that so many creatures make to communicate and how the soundscapes of the world are changing, often for worse, but not necessarily. And so I'm curious, what drew you to focus so much on the sound itself, sonic diversity, not just, say, individual species and habitat? Yes, well, sound is the great connector, the, the, the vibrations in air and water and in solid matter that connect living beings. Uh, and sound passes through barriers and uh, moves, moves around and through doors and, so, so it's, and, and can be audible over many, many miles. In, in some cases. And so sound is, is the great connector, but also the great revealer. And my previous books, which are about the ecology of forests and how people are connected to trees and forests and, mm. and places around, around the world, I paid particular attention to the senses, because as a, as a writer and as a scientist, I find attending to my ears, my nose, my fingertips, <laughs> all of these things help me to understand the place. And sound is just such a rich but also underappreciated way of, of connecting. Of course, what we're doing now is communicating by sound. Humans are a linguistic and a musical species 
And yet, most of our discussions of evolution and of conservation leave sound out, and I wanted to explore what riches there might be from from a little sustained attention to sound. Yeah, it really strikes me as I read through the book that sound itself is like the main character, the main protagonist in your book, that you explore so much about soundscape extinction, far more than, say, the extinction of species, but you're saying it is the great connector. I mean, anything that really has drawn you in, even in the course of this book, more into just the importance of sounds and perhaps silence. You obviously spent a lot of time in silence listening. Yeah, I mean, silence is an interesting uh, idea because it's actually very, very hard to find complete silence in the world. One has to mm. climb into an anechoic chamber. Where, wherever we go, there's always some sound. And in the, even in an anechoic chamber, what we hear is the sound of our own heartbeat and the sound of and many listeners may have had this experience in a really, really quiet place. You become aware of the, of the incredibly loud sounds of, one, of their, your own body, even just moving your, your fingers through the air or rubbing them onto one another makes sound. And so to escape sound is, uh, is very hard, but of course there are different degrees and, and <laughs> different degrees of our ability to, to listen in the middle of a, a busy city or um, in the oceans near a shipping lane or near seismic uh, surveys. There's just a cacophony of sound, and many of the communicative sounds of life are blocked out. Uh, so what mm. I try to do is, is put my ears into different locations, some of them what we would call very noisy, others very quiet, and, just, and try and listen for the stories and the intersections of energies. And in particular, one theme that runs through the book is trace some of these stories back into time, mm. whether it's the ancient stories of the evolution of sound among non-human animals or the origins of human language and human instrumental music, which is a story that just goes back a few hundred thousand years instead of hundreds of millions of years. Yeah, fascinating. Um, I'd love listeners to just hear you. I want you to read a passage, if you would. I think it's on page eight of the preface before we get into sure. one of the tributaries here. Sure, paragraphs here from the preface. Um, so I write, the diverse sounds of the world are now in crisis. Our species is both an apogee of sonic creativity and the great destroyer of the world's acoustic riches. Habitat destruction and human noise are erasing sonic diversity worldwide. Never in the history of Earth have sounds been so rich and varied. Never has this diversity been so threatened. We live amid riches and despoliation. Environmental problems are often presented in terms of atmospheric change, chemical pollution, or species extinction. These are essential perspectives and measures, but we also need a complementary frame. Our actions are bequeathing the future an impoverished sensory world. As wild sounds disappear forever, and human noise smothers other voices, Earth becomes less vital, blander. This decline is not a mere loss of sensory ornament. Sound is generative. And so the erasure of sonic diversity makes the world less creative. The crisis exists within our own species, too. The burdens of noise, ill health, poor learning, and increased mortality are unjustly distributed. Racism, 
sexism and power asymmetries create dire sonic inequities. Listening opens us to the wonders of sonic communication and creativity. Listening also teaches us that we lay, live in an age of diminishment. Aesthetics, the appreciation and consideration of the perceptions of the senses, should therefore be central guides amid the convulsions of change and injustice that we live within. Yet, we are increasingly disconnected from sensory storied relationship to life's community. This rupture is part of the sensory crisis. We become estranged from both the beauty and brokenness of much of the living world. This destroys the necessary sensory foundations for human ethics. The crises in which we live, then, are not just environmental of the environs, but perceptual. When the most powerful species on Earth ceases to listen to the voices of others, calamity ensues. The vitality of the world depends in part on whether we turn our ears back to the living Earth. To listen, then, is a delight, a window into life's creativity, and a political and moral act. Whew, that says a lot. It's such a meditation and an invocation to stop and listen and connect. So I want to take us way back. When I mean, you go back to the earliest, what's known anyway, what's known about the earliest sounds, the communicative sounds of the universe, mm -hmm. and you rec you've recorded sounds that we're going to play now of katydids, like cicadas, whose ancestors created the first communicative sounds known on Earth many, many millions of years ago. So let's take a quick listen to that. That's probably two katydids. I know it always sounds like an orchestral of 500 of them or something, but presumably you did not go back in time and record this. This is from a forest in Tennessee, right? Yes. So, so, so what we just heard are from a, a forest in late summer in Tennessee where all that, that sunlight mm. energy that the trees have captured gets transmuted into insect sound, this amazing chorus of thousands and thousands of katydids all singing at once. It really, it really is one of the great glories of, of sound on Earth. The same is true in warm, lush forests worldwide, particularly at the end of, of the growing season. And these are the distant relatives of the first sound makers on Earth, the first known sound, communicative sound maker on Earth is a cricket-like creature called Pomostridulus that lived 270 million years ago <laughs> that, like modern katydids, rubbed its, rubbed its wings together to make raspy little sounds. How is it known that this Pomostridulus, whatever it is, was the actual first insect to make Commun or first creature, right? To it make is, communicative sounds. It is the first physical evidence that uh -huh. of a sound-making structure on any fossil. And actually, it took hundreds of millions of years after complex animals evolved uh, for sound-making to first appear, probably because predation kept a lid on sound-making until 
flying insects evolved or, or frogs that had powerful jumping legs, creatures that could get away from, from predators. turns out that insect wings are also excellent sound makers. They're these papery surfaces, almost like the inside of a, of a loudspeaker, connected to pulsing muscles like the amp on the loudspeaker. The pulsing muscles, of course, first evolved for flight, but then, but then secondarily can be used for sound making. And on the ridge of this fossilized ancient cricket on the, on the wings, you see these tiny little ridges uh, that would have been rubbed against the base of the other wing to make a rasping sound in a manner exactly analogous to what happens when a modern cricket or Katie did makes it sound. And so, indeed, there may well have been earlier sound makers mm-hmm. just don't have any fossil evidence of them yet. Well, so you say that one reason, evolutionarily speaking, that many creatures began to make communicative sounds was once they developed the ability, like wings, to fly away from a predator. But wouldn't they also need to make some sounds to find a mate far away? Yeah, I mean, the advantage of making the sound is, is indeed you expand the, the range at which you can be detected, right? So, mm-hmm. so that mates can find one another and, uh, and you can repel rivals. And sound can also be defensive when, a, to this day, if you pick up many little insects, what they do is they make a little buzz that, that's <laughs> sort of shocking and alarming to us, and, and then we drop it. And same is true for mice and spiders. They get freaked out by these sounds, and so sound can be defensive as well. But before communicative sound evolved, insects and all other creatures would have had to found, find mates by other means, just by searching for them in a tactile sense, which, which can take a very, very long time, a tiny little insect in a dense habitat, or by using chemical cues, you know, releasing pheromones onto the wind, or, by, or searching out with, with eyes. There, there are other mechanisms, but sound really, particularly in dark, turbid waters or in dense vegetation, um, is a huge advantage if, if you're trying to defend territory and attract a mate. Mm-hmm. And as you say, so much more than sound itself that does both that, attracting the mate and getting away from the predator, or being a predator, yep. for that matter. Um, I want to move us to Colorado. I'm fascinated that, uh, I mean, you're based in Tennessee, and you spent a year or two in Boulder, and much of the book, I mean, woven throughout the book, are different scenes of Colorado forests and the sounds of them or the lack of the sounds based on different um, habitat destruction or probably beetle kill and such. Um, I want to bring us to, let's just play a clip from a Colorado forest. I think it's both, we're going to be listening to a red crossbill or several and some elk and we can talk about that. I love that sound. There's nothing like uh, yeah, yeah. being up at Rocky Mountain National Park <clears throat> in the fall. Tell us something about this okay. bird and this bugler, this elk, and how they evolved to make the sounds they do in this, yeah. in their particular environment, because you talk a lot about adapting to the environment they're in. Yeah, so yeah, the big point is that, that 
all animal voices are adapted to the physical and ecological nature of the environment in which they're found. And the Rocky Mountains are a great way to, it's a great place to hear that. Um, one example of that is the, when the wind blows through Ponderosa pine or blows through some of the spruce and fir at higher elevations, it makes this incredible roaring sound. There are a few forests anywhere in the world that are louder when the wind blows on them than the Rocky Mountains. Why is that? It's because the, in, the, in the Rockies, the trees have very stiff needles. And so when the wind blows through them, the, the needles tear the wind, they harrow the wind and make this incredible whooshing sound. So it makes this, and it's a very low frequency sound, it's a big roar. Yeah. Many of the animals in the Rocky Mountains, and that like, could block their communication channel. So what they do often is pitch their voices above that. So the Red Cross bill, which if I remember right, that particular recording was from Heil Valley Ranch, hmm. a beautiful sound of early spring in, in the, uh, well, in, in, particularly in, in the foothills, uh, in the Ponderosa Pine and, and the Douglas Fir. Uh, this is a, a fairly large bird, but it's singing quite a high-frequency song. It's singing a song that is at a much higher frequency than you would expect for its body size. And is it higher frequency than, say, the Red Cross bill? in a forest in California, or maybe they don't even have that range. But, I mean, is it much louder or different frequency because of the it wind high just here? It is than other closely related species of the same body size. In fact, it's higher frequency than even some smaller related finches. Hmm. The elk is an even more drastic example. An elk is making such a high frequency sound that it's if you looked at other mammals, you'd say, and all you had was a recording, you'd say, well, that's a mammal about the size of a rabbit. <laughs> Smaller animals make higher pitch sounds, just like a piccolo is higher frequency than a, than a long concert flute. You so don't expect it coming from this massive male creature with just yeah. humongous and racks. The red deer, I mean, so the elk in North America, in Rocky Mountain elk, they're very close cousins of the red deer in Northern Europe. And the red deer in Northern Europe have a very low bellow. But the ones in North America make this super high-frequency sound that is well-matched to the forests in which they live, to the soundscape of the forests that they live. So in a way, the sounds of the mountains have become embedded into the, the form of the songs of these creatures. Now, those are just two examples of a much more general phenomenon. For mm -hmm. in, in woodlands, birds tend to sing slow whistled songs because those sounds transmit very readily through the, uh, th uh, through the dense vegetation. And what, they just wouldn't want to waste their calories, waste their energy on doing more than they need to do to communicate? Yes, and also a very rapid trill would get muddled as it went through all that dense vegetation. Oh, yeah. Out on the open prairie, birds make much faster trills. They're, they're much more virtuosic. <laughs> uh, why? Because they can get away with it. There's no, there's no dense vegetation to blur and smudge their, their, beautiful, their beautiful songs. And you can hear that out on the front range. You go out to the open spaces, the grasslands, and the, the birds that, that live there, whether it's you know, lark buntings, grasshopper sparrows, they all tend to make these very rapid, uh, rapidly modulated songs. <laughs> They're bravado. Uh, so for those who are joining us late, you're listening to KGNU's Science Show. I'm your host, Susan Moran, and I'm talking with biologist David George Haskell about his new book. It's called Sounds Wild and Broken, 
Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. So I'm curious, I mean, you gave several examples of creatures that adapt themselves, vocally and otherwise, to the environment they're in. We have, as you illustrate in the book somewhat, so many examples of, be it habitat destruction or sort of drought-induced exacerbation of beetle kill, so many things that are... Mm-hmm destroying or at least fragmenting habitats. Like I've noticed more backpacking in Colorado, particularly in or near the fire singed areas, is so quiet. I don't have a control. I don't have the comparison, but talk some about the impacts of habitat destruction on yeah i mean on not just i mean the sounds obviously the individuals but the sounds the soundscape and what's happening mhm yeah well we we're having two sort of um two very different sorts of effects out in the world in in some places as the example that you use a sort of um habitat change either happening through fire climate change or directly through the clearing of forests for example yeah. most tropical forests are in crisis we're losing 4 million hectares of primary tropical forest every year 12 million hectares of a forest worldwide are lost hmm. mostly being converted to commodity crops and to urban areas and the, i mean there are a lot of causes of deforestation but uh, so so when when that kind of habitat change happens, we massively simplify the ecological communities that are present within them. So if you take a, a complex forest and turn it into a tree plantation, basically a monocrop, you lose most of the species, and so you lose the sonic diversity of that place. So sonic diversity is actually a useful way of, of studying and quickly assessing the health of forests. But also in more long-term ecological evolutionary context, the sonic connectivity of the habitat within and between species mm. is a source of resilience and creativity, evolutionary creativity within the habitat. So in a way, we're cutting off the ability of creatures to, to, to bounce back. On the other hand, there are places where we are, we are pumping so much noise into the environment that other species cannot hear one another, and therefore we're cutting their social networks, and they can't breed and live and connect successfully. The oceans are the most dire mm-hmm. place in which this is happening. And, and we're, whether or not we live on the coast, we are a maritime species because 90% of the stuff in our homes arrive from other continents on ships. And every one of those ships is pumping noise into the deep ocean. The gas mm, that we put point. into our the oil, you know, when we fill up with gasoline, when we heat our houses with oil, a lot of that has come from underneath the ocean. How is that found? Through seismic surveys, these air gun arrays that, that pump incredible amounts of sound into the oceans to, to the point where it's killing creatures directly if they're close to it and driving others away. So yeah. we're creating a sonic hell in the oceans. In cities, there's, there's a, a, a parallel or less severe uh, problem on, in the terrestrial world. So where, if at all, do you hold out much hope for whether it's the restoration of quietude enough for these creatures to survive yeah. or humans getting our act together and changing you know, shipping and all sorts of other things that are creating sure. really destructive noise? 
Yeah, well, I mean, we, we can't get our act together. The great thing about sonic pollution is when you stop making the sound, it disappears, unlike chemical pollution, which lasts for, for centuries or, or millennia. Yeah. And yes, we can engineer um, uh, quieter ships, and that's already happening. Uh, we can slow some ships down, particularly when they go through critical areas. That makes less noise. We can use less stuff that we have bought from from other continents. So relocalizing economies mm -hmm. has a benefit for local economies, but it also means that we're imposing less uh, grief and pain and sonic disconnection on ocean beings. And so uh, local economies actually have all sorts of positive effects uh, in, in that way. Weaning ourselves off of oil, as we are doing it at an increasing rate, uh, also has those benefits. And of course, Colorado is uh, both a, a champion state when it comes to fracking the land, mm -hmm. but also bearing the consequences of that with fires popping up every few weeks. And you look at the mountains and half of them are burned down to mineral soil. So I mean, one of the interesting things about living in Colorado was, was seeing the extent of both um, a bonanza resource extraction happening in the same place where some of the more severe consequences of that resource extraction are being felt. Living for months, for example, in 2020 in, you know, in Boulder, where just breathing smoke the whole time for months on end. Right. The AQI was so high you know, from fires, but also from extraction and fossil fuels. Well, thank you so much, David George Haskell, for coming on the show. Hope to have you again. And thank you. good luck with the book. Thank you, Susan. That was David George Haskell, professor of biology and environmental studies at Sewanee, the University of the South in Tennessee. His latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction, was just published. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional sounds from Mother Nature's elk birds, crickets, and more via David Haskell. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.